This is our third and final week of our ongoing study, The Sin of Homosexuality. This uh, study has sprung out of the Apostle Paul's indictment of the pagan nations who have refused God's self-revelation in creation and have consequently descended down into the deep, dark abyss of sin and depravity. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul presents a fourfold indictment of the nations where he lays out the fall of humanity intellectually, spiritually, sexually, and socially. In the context of Romans 1, the classic example that Paul draws to the forefront of the fall of man sexually is the unnatural sin of homosexuality. That's why it's here in the text. And because this topic is so front and center today in our nation, and because there is so much misinformation abounding out there with regard to it, we have decided to devote three weeks to this topic. So, two weeks ago, we exegeted and exposited verses 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 1. Last week, we began to raise and answer a series of questions that are common, I think, to many people's minds with regard to this topic. And so last week, I raised and answered six questions with regard to the sin of homosexuality so that we might be able to think biblically with regard to this topic and so that we might be able to give hope to those who find themselves ensnared to this particular form of lust. If you were not here last week, you can get a copy of that message and it would profit you to do so. Even if you find the temptations towards homosexuality to be out of your experience base, there is still much that you can learn with regard to the topic in general, in terms of thinking biblically, and there's much that you can learn to apply to your own life with regard to whatever area of lust you struggle with in particular. Those questions, just to get your thinking back engaged here, last week that we raised and answered was, number one, was biblical homosexuality unnatural and is modern day homosexuality natural? We raised and answered that question. Secondly, are people born homosexual? Third, are people influenced towards homosexuality? Four, do people make a conscious choice to pursue homosexuality? Five, where do homosexual desires come from? And six, is homosexual desire sinful or only the behavior? Those are the questions we raised and answered last week. This morning I have two more. Just two more questions that we will raise and answer together. So, question number seven, 
in this series is, Can a person have victory over homosexual desires? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and beginning in verse 11. Just put your thumb there. We'll delve into that here in a moment. Can a person have victory over homosexual desires? It's an important question. And to answer the question, we first need to define what is meant by the term victory. We need to know what that word really means. If we define victory over the desire for this sin or any other sin as the complete eradication of the pull of it in our lives, the answer is no. The answer is no. The fight against sin is a daily struggle. It is an intense form of hand-to-hand combat. And it is fought at the level of the mind. It is fought in the mind. And we are told in the New Testament that to approach this combat, this battle, we need to first of all consider the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus. We need to consider ourselves, think of ourselves as dead to the pull of sin and alive to the pull of righteousness. That's Paul's statements for us here beginning in verse 11 of Romans 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, because earlier Paul says that's indeed, if you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by saving faith, that's indeed what is true of you. You were crucified with Him. So consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." What Paul says is that we need to, in our mind, begin to think like the reality of our position in Jesus Christ. That is, that we have died to sin. We were crucified with Christ. Its bondage over us has been broken. Now, we, the moment of salvation, we weren't immediately taken to glory. We are left here in these fleshly human bodies that have all kinds of predispositions that we have built into them through the years of our unfaithfulness to God, our years of walking contrary to His Word and His will. This is the depravity that inhabits the human heart. And so we we live this life in this zone in which we are new in Jesus Christ, but we are still living out our lives in a body that is predisposed towards the old way of life. Paul tells us in verse 13 here that we are to refrain from a behavior. That is, we are to refrain from presenting our bodies as slaves 
to sin. We are to stop living like the old way we used to live. And instead, we're to present ourselves as slaves to righteousness. This is key. How do you do that? How do you go about doing that? Well, in the past, we pursued sin with vigor. We pursued sin with intensity. We pursued sin with devotion. It was habitual. It was pleasurable. It was constant in our lives. We didn't seriously consider any other course for our lives. It is the world in which we lived. But now we have been given a new nature in Jesus Christ. And so we are to pursue righteousness with the same kind of devotion and intensity that we formerly pursued sin with. That's Paul's argument in verse 19 here in chapter 6. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Every single one of us knows what it's like to pursue unrighteousness. You can remember that. Paul says, the way you used to live, just take that kind of devotion and intensity and now turn it to pursue the things of God. Follow after Christ the way you used to follow after your own fleshly desires. Now, there are several misconceptions that are prevalent out there in Christianity that I want to take a moment and talk about with regard to how is the believer sanctified, that is, how does the believer grow in Christ-likeness. These erroneous understandings that are prevalent promise a victory over sin, but in the end leave the believer frustrated. So, let's just take a look here at these erroneous views. The first is what's called the Wesleyan view of sanctification or the fight against the pull of sin in our lives. That's what we're talking about. The Wesleyan view speaks of a second work of grace. The first work of grace is the work of redemption in which you become a new creature in Christ. But this second work of grace catapults the believer into a state of sinlessness. It's often called entire sanctification. Sin is defined in this view in a very narrow and limited way as a willful transgression of the known law of God. Sin is a willful transgression of the known law of God. Anything we do not clearly intend to do or are ignorant about doing is called a mistake under this view. So that's when they talk about entire sanctification or sinless perfection. That's what they're talking about is the elimination of the willful intention to sin. Spiritual growth, according to this view, and this, by the way, is a very prevalent view among Pentecostals and those influenced by them. Under this view, spiritual growth takes place after the second work of grace by just increasing in our love and good works for other people. That's how you will grow after this second work. 
Of course, in many traditions, that second work is also associated with speaking in tongues, right? Another erroneous view you may have heard of is called a Keswick view. It comes from Keswick, England, where there are annual conferences. It's also known as the deeper life view of sanctification. The teaching here is that there is a unique post salvation commitment or enlightenment that occurs that allows the believer to enter into a victorious and consistent life of obedience. So when this post-conversion event happens, this enlightenment where the, you know, the, your eyes come alive and you kind of see this new truth, then from that point forward you begin to live in a new plane at a new level. The struggle with sin continues, but it is lessened significantly by this new truth that you have now understood and accepted. Spiritual growth under this view takes place primarily by a passive trust in the work of God. It's commonly represented by the slogan, right? Let go and let God. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've unfortunately said that before. Okay? That is a Keswick or a deeper life view. The biblical view commonly called the Reformed view of sanctification, is that it is a lifelong process or cycle of sin, repentance, renewal, and growth towards Christ-likeness that will only be complete when Christ takes us home to meet Him face to face. So under a Reformed view, or in this case, a, I believe a biblical view of what Paul is teaching, throughout the New Testament, is that the struggle against sin is an ongoing struggle. It's just a hand-to-hand combat. It's a fight that occurs every day of your life. We win this fight in the individual battles, day by day, moment by moment, and we lose in the individual battles, day by day, moment by moment. As the believer actively entrusts himself to the energizing work of the Holy Spirit within him, he will gain a measure of victory that will move him along towards the likeness of Jesus Christ. Perhaps this chart will illustrate what I'm talking about here a little bit. This first chart is a graphic representation of the Wesleyan or Keswick view you can see time on the bottom as you move forward in time from your point of redemption. Holiness is measured on the left-hand side, so you're increasing in holiness. And so both the Wesleyan view and the Keswick view say that something has happened. Something happened. In the Wesleyan view, it's, a, it's this, um, this second work of grace. In the Keswick view, it's this new spiritual enlightenment or commitment, this new biblical truth that you never knew before, that you now knew, that vaults you up on the sanctification meter, and then you begin to move from there. I call it a holy hop. Okay, You get the holy hop, and then you begin to live at a new level. Whereas the Reformed view says, this is what your wretched life is going to look like. Okay, And actually, this is a biblical view of your wretched life and mine too. It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. 
But there is a trend line over time because God is committed, Romans 8, to, to conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ, to making you like Jesus Christ. And so there is, there is a progress that goes on, but sometimes in the day-to-day struggles, you're not sure you can even see it. Every individual is unique. Some have higher peaks and valleys than others. If you were to graph the life of King David, you would see incredible highs and incredible lows, right? But this is the ongoing fight against sin. There are some common practical errors that come to those who believe in this biblical view. I'll just give them to you quickly because we all find ourselves in those. We echo the Wesleyan or Keswick view when we seem to be waiting for some divine event that will take away the strongest pull of sin in our lives. Something that will eliminate the need for concentrated self-discipline. Maybe you found yourself praying things like, Lord, please take away my desire for such and such sin. Or, Lord, change me. Or, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Those prayers echo an unbiblical view of sanctification. Asking God to give you the holy hop that doesn't exist. We echo a Wesleyan view when we admit that we sin all the time, yet we seldom ever ask for forgiveness. We seldom ever find ourselves confessing and repenting in our prayer lives. We echo the Keswick view of let go and let God by thinking that somehow if we just come and and listen faithfully to the preaching of the Word that will absorb some truth that will set us free from the bondage sin. Scriptural teaching alone without practice will not change you. James says you are to be what? Doers of the Word and not hearers only who deceive themselves. You know, one of the reasons we started Oikos groups was to provide a, a venue in which we could learn to apply the truth that we hear week after week after week. So back to the question, can a person have victory over homosexual desires? That's the question that's before the house. The answer is yes, but it is difficult. Yes, but it is difficult. Sexual sin is particularly insidious. It is a form of sin that grips the human soul unlike most others. It can lead us into bondage that is very, very difficult to overcome. But it can be overcome. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Such were some of you. Prior to that, and then two verses prior to that, he gave a list of pretty awful sin. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. There is victory possible. Every single Christian struggles with sin daily. And in subtle ways, it manifests itself in our lives. These sins require continual repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance. Continually repenting. 
But sexual sin that has been relentless and persistent in a person's life for a long period of time falls into a category of what the Bible calls life-dominating sins. Life-dominating sins. A life-dominating sin is a sin that a Christian commits because he or she feels powerless to change even though they know that it is wrong. It's called a life-dominating sin. I quote Jay Adams, biblical counselor, and he says, when a man, as a man, as a whole person, can be labeled fairly as a drunkard, a homosexual, a drug addict, etc., he has a life-dominating problem. He is no longer merely a man, but a special kind of man, a drunkard, a liar, a double-minded man. That is, a man characterized by or dominated by the particular problem that gives him his name. The Bible labels those with life-dominating problems. The Bible calls them drunkards. It calls them liars. Homosexuality, and make sure you understand this, is no worse than the, in the eyes of God than any other sin. No worse. God hates all sin. However, homosexuality is different from many sins because it is so consuming. It is a consuming sin. It is a life-dominating sin. It is a destructive slavery that affects every aspect of a man's life. It robs him of his masculine identity. It robs him of his close and supportive normal male friendships that should be enjoyed. It robs a man of normal feelings and attractions to women. And for the believer struggling with this sin, it severely mars his relationship with God and frequently causes him to live a life of defeat and self-recrimination. He hides his secret from the rest of the body. How do you gain victory over these kind of life-dominating sins? John Street, who is the chairman of the graduate program for biblical counseling at the Master's College, wrote an article recently. And in that article, he laid out five strategies for combating specifically the sin of homosexuality, but the application is for these other life-dominating sins as well. He says first that a person needs to form their identity in Christ. We're assuming a believer here now. We're assuming a believer, the one who has trusted Christ for their salvation, yet is still in bondage to this kind of lust. The first thing that has to happen is the person must come to a full understanding of their identity in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It requires one to recognize that they are undeserving. An undeserving sinner, yet they enjoy the gracious provision of God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been 
given to them. And so they stand accepted before God their Father in Christ. They may be tempted by homosexual desires, but they are not a homosexual. They are a Christian. That's huge. That is huge. One of the key ways to enforce our identity in Christ, and this applies to all of us, is to meditate on the Gospel. It is to meditate upon the Gospel. The Gospel is not just for the lost. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, right? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is for all of us. It is just as much for the believer as it is for the unbeliever. And so, to meditate upon the Gospel is a means to form your identity in Christ. Something we all need. Secondly, John Street says that the confession must include the condition as well as the behavior of homosexuality. Change begins when a person sees the problem like God sees it. When a person realizes that it is not just their actions, but even their life is an affront to a holy God. And they are crushed and broken because of it. Confession must include specific thoughts, specific desires, and specific, specific deeds which are sinful. This, by the way, is confession for all of us. We're light on the confession scale. We let ourselves off the hook way too easy. Third, repentance must include a complete renunciation of the homosexual lifestyle. A complete renunciation. Sexual sin requires radical surgery. Mark that down. Sexual sin requires radical surgery. If you find yourself in bondage to the sin of pornography here, and statistically I know that there are many out here that do, if you want relief, if you want victory, it will require a radical surgery. And until you are willing to go under the knife, you will not be free. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30 on the Sermon on the Mount, right? If your right eye makes you stumble, do what? Tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Repentance from life-dominating sins need to be so comprehensive that it renounces the entire dominating lifestyle. Every thought, every motivational desire, every word, every habit, every action that has initiated or facilitated homosexuality in a person's life must be acknowledged before the Lord as sin. And I would say that's the same for those involved in heterosexual sin. You're in the sin of pornography... Every thought, every motivational desire, every word, every habit, every action, everything that leads towards that sin must be renounced. must be acknowledged for what it is. It must be confessed. Some years back, a popular Christian artist 
by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song called Burn the Ships. The lyrics of that song, I think, illustrate the radical surgery that is required. I won't sing it for you, so don't get nervous. Okay? But I will read it to you as a poem. How's that? In the spring of 1519, a Spanish fleet set sail. Cortez told his sailors this mission must not fail. On the eastern shore of Mexico, they landed with great dreams. But the hardship of the new world made them restless and weak. Quietly, they whispered, let's sail back to the life we knew. But the one who led them there was saying, burn the ships. We're here to stay. There's no way we could go back now that we've come this far by faith. Burn the ships. We've passed the point of no return. Our life is here. So let the ships burn. In the spring of a new beginning, a searching heart set sail. Looking for a new life and a love that would not fail. On the shores of grace and mercy, we landed with great joy. But an enemy was waiting to steal, kill, and destroy. Quietly, he whispers, go back to the life you know. But the one who led us here is saying, burn the ships. We're here to stay. There's no way we could go back now that we've come this far by faith. Burn the ships. We've passed the point of no return. Our life is here, so let the ships burn. Nobody said it would be easy. But the one who brought us here is never going to leave us alone. He's done a good job of capturing the reality of the new life in Christ. Burn the ships. There's no going back. Fourth, John Street says that victory over the life-dominating sin of homosexuality comes by teaching God's original model for sexuality. Carefully, thoughtfully, studying through Genesis 1 and 2, helping to solidify in our minds a biblical theology of creation of the first man and woman. An understanding that they were created by God to reflect His glory. And it is only in the union of husband and wife that the glory can be reflected as He intended. The reality of being fruitful and multiplying. And fulfillment of the divine commandment. Carefully, thoughtfully studying through those early chapters of Genesis. Last, Street says that we need to understand that sex is a matter of worship. Well, I bet I could craft that into a sermon title and put it out on a marquee and we could pack this place out, huh? Right? But it's true. All of life is a matter of worship, right? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do what? Do all of the glory of God. This is not some aspect of animal biology, contrary to what many would have you believe today. It is an act of worship. It is a spiritual act. Any perversion of God's created order 
for sexual relationships is a demonstration of idolatry. It's idolatry. All sexual sin springs from a covetous heart and is a manifestation of false worship. All sexual sin is a manifestation of false worship. It is a worship of the creature rather than the creator. We need to see it that way. If you are involved in sexual sin of any kind, this morning you are in the grips of idolatry. You need to see it that way. Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 5, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Notice he says again, consider it to be true. Because it is true. Begin to live like it's true. Final question. This kind of brings it on home now, right? How should Foothill respond to people ensnared by homosexual sin? What should be our response? First, we need to guard our own hearts against a double standard with regard to this sin. Earl Wilson, in his book, Counseling and Homosexuality, writes, and I quote, We believe that lying is a sin, yet we reach out to liars. We believe that adultery is a sin and find compassion for the adulterer. We believe that the practice of homosexuality is a sin and close our doors to both the practicing homosexual and the person who is trying hard to obey God. Double standards. I got an email this past week sent to me. It was written, part of it, by a former homosexual who is now a follower of Jesus Christ. He writes, quote, The problem in many fundamentalist evangelical churches is that we treat people who are in bondage to the sin of homosexuality like untouchables, outcasts, rather than folks in desperate need of God's mercy and our compassion. We must avoid a manner of talking to them that makes them feel like we are lowering truth over a wall to them on a pole and a string into a compound of lepers. Wow. Wow. We will have compassion when we examine our own hearts when we recognize the difficulty that we have in overcoming how lust manifests itself in our life. When we take a good hard look at ourselves first. When we take the log out of our own, what? Eye. Then we will see clearly to take the speck from our brother's eye, Jesus said. When we recognize how much lust has a grip on our own soul, then we will have compassion for someone else. Particularly someone else whose lusts we do not feel, whose struggles we do not share. Oh, it's so easy to be judgmental of someone else. Someone perhaps struggling with the sin of gluttony. Why don't they just not eat so much? Be like me. I don't know. I mean, 
thin person says. Right? What's the big deal? All you got to do is say no. Wow. So much unrighteousness in our own hearts. We're so quick to judge others. So quick to put other people down. So quick to point the accusing finger at other people and refuse to examine our own hearts, our own motivations. Foothill Bible Church exists to diligently pursue Christ and courageously proclaim Him. Beloved, we will never, ever be able to reach out and share the love of Jesus Christ with someone trapped in the sin of homosexuality if all they sense from us is derision, hostility, superiority, and mocking. If that is our approach, you can forget it. We say we want to make the gospel available to everyone in the city of Upland every year. Because we have the life-changing truth. Amen? Let me give you some specific applications. We must not joke about that which God hates. We must not joke about that which God hates. A joke in which a person enslaved to homosexual lust is the punchline is not funny. It is not funny. Paul says there must be no filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. We need to clean up our mouths. We need to clean up our minds. It's amazing to me that there are so many other areas of sin we would never think of making a joke out of. And yet we will do that. Young men, talk to you in particular because this is something I've heard repeatedly in your company. You must abstain from using the word gay as a form or a term of derision for that which you do not like. Find another word. If something doesn't agree with you, it is not gay. Don't speak like that. As long as that's the attitude that we have, someone who is struggling in this area of sin will never own up to it. Ever. And why would they? If all they think they're going to do is be mocked. Parents, do not try to hide your family in a closet. Try to wall off the world. Try to run away. If you've learned anything, I hope, in the weeks we've been going through Romans chapter 1, is no matter where you run, you drag in your lust with you. Because it comes from your heart. Speak with your children. Speak with them. Give them a biblical perspective on this issue. Don't allow their view with regard to the issues of life to be formed by the media or their friends, even their Christian friends. Teach them the truth. Which implies that you need to know the truth first yourself. 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, when a disciple is fully mature, he will be just like his teacher. It's a heavy responsibility. Remember this. It's not heterosexuality that gets you into heaven. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. A biblical church should attract homosexuals. A biblical church should attract homosexuals, not repel them. This is because a biblical church will pursue them with the love of Jesus Christ, just like any other sinner. When we exalt Christ through the preaching of the Word and the changed lives, we'll have an answer for all the people who are out there who are guilt-ridden and seeking hope. We have the answer. We have the Gospel. We have the Gospel. It's the power of God to everyone who believes. We have folks here this morning for the first time. We've got others who have come a number of times. But I'm sure in a crowd of this size, we've got people here who do not know Jesus Christ. They may know a lot about Him. They may not know much about Him at all. But they do not know Him as their Savior. You can know Him today. You can know Him today. The Bible calls on you to repent of your sin, to turn from your self-will, to turn from your independent thinking, to turn from a life that is lived for your own satisfaction and enchained and enslaved to your own lusts, and to throw yourself upon the mercy of God, to call out to Him to save you. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We cannot reach up to God, so God reached down to us. He condescended. He lowered Himself. Second person of the triune Godhead left the throne rooms of glory and came to earth, took upon Himself human flesh, walked among mankind, suffered and died unjustly in the place of those who would by faith embrace Him. We know that His sacrificial death was accepted by God on behalf of His people because God raised Him from the dead the third day. If you will call out to Him in faith, saying, Jesus, I know I cannot be right with God myself. I have nothing to offer Him. I deserve condemnation. I am a wicked man, woman, child. At the depth of my being, I sin. Even when I don't want to sin, I sin. I need a Savior. 
I believe you died for me. Come into my heart, into my life. Be my Savior. The Bible says you will be saved. When we finish here in a few moments, over by this uh, east, southeast corner, there will be some folks be waiting to talk to you. Maybe you have something that you want to unburden your heart with. You came in here with a heavy burden. You want someone to talk to, someone to pray for you, pray with you, someone to give you some spiritual advice. Maybe, maybe you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning. It can lead you to the throne of grace. You go over there and you talk to those folks. Let them minister to you. Let me pray. God, our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ because He is our only hope, because He is Your only solution. You did not leave mankind to be stuck in sin without possibility of redemption. Although we all deserve condemnation, our Father, the fires of hell are not hot enough for what we deserve. And yet, Lord God, You have chosen not to condemn us all, but in Your kindness and graciousness and mercy to reach out and save us. Transform us from Your enemies to Your friends. Donate to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that we might now be able to come into Your presence without being consumed. That we might know that life everlasting in a restored relationship with our Creator is now our possession by faith. Lord God, we walk still in this earth and in these earthly bodies. The struggle with sin is fierce and strong. You have provided a way of escape and we know that You're committed to transforming us to be like Jesus Christ. Renew within us, our Father, a passion and a desire, a willingness to fight the fight. We look forward with longing to the return of Christ for us, His church, when this struggle will come to an end, when we will be in totality what we are now in principle, righteous and ready to be with you forever. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.